You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Dan Coleman, who is using Django and Python to develop tools that collect and process genomic data from researchers who are studying pediatric cancers and rare diseases. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. Good to be here. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the app we're going to talk about today? Sure thing. So I am a technical lead here at the Center for Data-Driven Discovery in Biomedicine, and we're at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Uh, We're a research center, and we focus a lot primarily on scientific studies and collecting data from rare diseases such as brain tumors or rare birth defects and augmenting that data, analyzing it, and getting it back to clinicians and researchers for further use and analysis. So we primarily, I and my team work on developing internal tooling to help with that process of the whole data flow um, of all that important information. So we develop apps to process that data uh, by collecting it from um, various different, not just one hospital, many hospitals throughout the country and the world, and bring it together into one centralized location uh, that we're responsible for, where we're able to process it very uh, harmonized manner and uniform manner so that we can provide a lot more value out of our analysis and then do research on that and return it back to the community. So Yes, like you said, my app is the app is built on Django, and it's a fantastic framework for doing just that, where it kind of gets out of our way and just lets us do our business logic and the flows that we need to do to make that happen. Nice. So you mentioned you're a part of a team. Are there a couple of different devs working on this, or is it just you? Sure. So yes, right now I am the lead for the applications team. It's just two of us, actually. But amongst our greater unit, there is about 12 developers at the moment, developers and analysts and uh, DevOps as well. Okay. You also mentioned something about community. Uh, so these are just researchers. Do they just, they can just sign up and get access to all this data or, there, or is there some type of like, uh, you know, a whole bunch of red tape that you have to go through to get access to that? Well, that is the grand vision. Absolutely. So we are in charge of a couple of data collection projects that we hope can be available to almost anyone, anyone with a Google identity or uh, Facebook or LinkedIn, single sign-on, come in and get the data. Uh, But we also control a lot of other data that's actually within the National Institute of Health's ecosystem. And for that data, yes, you do have to go through some red tape, get specific access, so on and so forth. Okay, cool. Also, uh, is it true that your app is open source? It absolutely is open source. Uh, We try to develop as much as we can in the public. It is public funded through the NIH. So uh, yes, we try to give back as much as we can. Very cool. So I don't know if you're going to be able to share this one, but can you let us know like maybe how much uh, traffic you get to this internally? Like what type of researchers are using it? Sure. Yeah, I can share that. Uh, So internally, we're getting traffic. We're just serving a handful of coordinators, research coordinators um, with our internal app. And it's maybe only on the order of 10 to 20 users to be realistic. And then we actually have the front facing portal where you might go as a researcher to obtain the data. And on that end, we're looking more on the hundreds or so of researchers looking at that uh, and getting data from us that way. 
So you mentioned earlier that you're using Django and it was a really great fit for the type of app that you're building. Can you go into maybe like the motivation for choosing Django? Like why is it such a good framework for this type of app? Yeah, well, to start that one off, we can go back to kind of the beginning of this project where up at that, until that point, I had worked primarily in Flask. And most of us had used Flask, which is the kind of the main alternative web framework. And so our first natural choice was to use Flask for our first big service. And that was fine and good. But when we want to go on to build more services, it's just, well, we don't want to standardize, like have to write all this boilerplate to standardize HTTP responses for our REST APIs and like implement permission policies and stuff. We don't want to do that again because it was kind of a headache. So when we want to go to our next service, uh, we decided Django was a good fit um, because we've got a really opinionated framework. We have things uh, like Django REST framework, which have very well-structured layouts and structure uh, and kind of blueprints to follow along with. So most of the work had been done for us. We could just kind of think about what is the main problem we're solving here um, if we were to choose Django. And so that's why we moved towards Django for our more recent projects. Okay, so basically batteries included are good. Yes, exactly like Django says. Batteries are included, fantastic. Yeah, so do you actually use some of you know Django's built-in features like the admin or no? Yes, yeah, so we actually don't use the admin at the moment, but I would like to say that I think maybe the biggest lesson learned so far about Django is that uh, you should try not to fight Django whenever possible because at the start we were trying to uh, defer like permission checking and uh, response formatting and such to kind of our own stuff and do it our own way. But then we more over time realized like, well, we should just be using what Django has built for us, like the internal permission groups and such. Um, so yeah, we're not using admin at the moment, but I'm wondering maybe on the next project, we should just embrace it and use it. Right, so if you're not using the admin current day, when you know when you need to add new records or something or you know make modifications like that, did you build out your own front ends for that, or do you just do it from the command line just for backend stuff? Yeah, so for we don't have any backend static kind of standard Django templating going on. We are primarily a GraphQL API. Uh, some of our services are REST as well, um, but everything supports GraphQL right now, and so yes, we have a, a separate code base that's all React JavaScript that does the communication with the backend to do kind of those inserts or whatever you need to do with the data. Right, so when you see backend though, in that case, are we talking two totally separate apps here? Like app number one would be where the researcher would go in and you know, fill out forms and see all that great data. And then like the other app is this like, you know, back office admin slash app, but it's custom? Uh, yes, yeah, so we have a couple of different applications. They're kind of specific to their task, kind of microservice-y. Uh, and yes, so we do have some backend applications that are internal to us where we kind of load the data up front before we've really cleaned it. Uh, and then later on, it will flow down to some other services that will serve it out back to the public. Okay. So you don't, do you maybe want to get into the details about how you sort of have maybe microservices here, like the names of those services, what they do, that type of stuff? Yeah, I think that's a fun topic to get into as well in terms of how that's evolved. So back when we started, microservices were, were hot stuff, uh, they still are, and it was really appealing because you've got this great division of 
these responsibilities and you don't have all these like dependencies that build up. So each team can be developing and rolling out updates and releases constantly. And it's really appealing. Um, and so that was the mindset where we started off with and we were doing like microservices and nano services with like just these 10 line Python codes on Lambda and such. Uh, but as it went on and we started to acquire more developers, it really turned into be a headache in terms of maintainability and getting everyone kind of in tune with what is all going on. So now, modern day, we're starting to collect everything back into a couple, just a few different backends, uh, which are becoming more and more like monoliths. Um, and so at the moment, we have maybe three, three or four of those. And my team is personally responsible for two of them. And they're kind of the more internal facing ones. So those are where the, the data will first land uh, before going downstream to the more public facing services. Okay. Do you want to go into a little bit more detail about those two that you're in charge of? We don't need to go super specific, but like, are you using Django apps to like break up that monolith just so you can organize the code a bit easier? Uh, yeah. So let's go down. So we have these two, serv two services now, primarily the internal services at uh, they just uh, service our internal users only. Um, and those are both Django apps. They're two independent code bases. So that's our main divide right there. So one app is responsible for coordinating and versioning our data. And the other app is responsible for collecting new data documents. And so they're both organized roughly the same way. Uh, so they are split up into applications. And I think this might diverge a little bit from how a lot of people do Django, where Django recommends that you do apps alongside your main kind of Django directory at the top level of your code base. But I like to put everything within kind of an app directory. So if you have the root directory and then you've got like my app, I like to put everything under my app instead of a, beside it. Uh, so then, yeah, inside of my app, I've got a bunch of kind of the actual applications as Django describes them. And those mostly describe our kind of different business entities. So we might have different apps for like S3 buckets or for Slack messages or for um, document versions or things like that. And those each deal with a specific business kind of entity, if you will. Okay. And like roughly, do you know the size of these apps in terms of lines of code maybe? Uh, lines of code, they're quite minimal, which is great for me. So we try to keep it down to the the minimum and only write whatever business logic we have to. Uh, so like each app, uh, I'm going to say maybe about 500 lines of code per app on average. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's not that's not too bad. Yeah, because uh, really the goal is to make sure we can scale to new developers, make sure everything's kind of in line, make sure it's all abstracted. So we try to avoid writing as much business code as possible. Right. So previously you were talking about, you know, the data collection process is separate from, you know, what researchers would pull down. I mean, I would just imagine here, you probably collect a lot of data, right? Like if, if it's all genome data, is it just like hundreds of gigs of stuff or what type of scale are we at here? Yes. Uh, well, technically we're at the scale of petabytes. I think we've got maybe four petabyte, five petabyte at the moment. And yes, it's all genomic data. It's all stored in S3 and it's actually stored throughout 
various cloud providers, S3 and GCP and Azure. And so we're not really concerned. Our team personally isn't concerned about the actual analysis or processing. We just kind of need to copy it from place to place at most and keep track of where it is at most. So we actually don't deal with that kind of scale. Uh, we only deal with the smaller documents that describe those larger genomic data files, if you will. Okay, so that those like you know petabytes of, of data, that's something your team doesn't directly manage. Is this is this like community data that, that like the world is uh, adding to, and then you kind of just you know mess around with that, or is this like you know those petabytes of data? Is that like data that your organization created? Yeah, so it's not our organization, but. Um, so one of our programs projects is an NIH funded national program where they funded a whole bunch of different research institutions to go out and collect samples from kids who have these rare diseases or cancers and take bio samples from their tumor extractions, for instance, or from their saliva, and they give them to companies to sequence that data, sequence the DNA, so like everyone has a, a genome, ACTG, and you just get ACTGs billions of times over, and that produces these huge genomic files, and then they all eventually land in our hands inside of an S3 bucket or what have you, and our job is to kind of keep track of where is that, and where is it in the process of kind of being ready to go out to researchers because we have to do some some work beforehand to make it ready for the actual general research use. So we're more like the logistics management group, if you will. Okay. So do you just like pull down that data from S3 and then save it locally in some type of database that the researchers would then pull from? No, um, because yes, these are terabytes large files. So we're doing everything in the cloud. So our bioinformatics team these are the people who actually deal with those ACTGs and what's going on inside of those. They work on cloud platforms uh, because bioinformatics says because of this nature of the, the size of these, these files, people have moved everything into the cloud now. So there are specific platforms uh, now created around working with these huge files. So we work with a company that provides such a service. And so our implementations will go in and describe what they're going to do in a workflow language, which will then interact with the data in AWS, Azure, what have you. Interesting. So you're not really even using something like Postgres to store that data in any way? Oh, no. Uh, not not the base call data, so not the ACTGs, um, not the raw DNA data. But we do have some applications now that are exploring the possibility of serving out some of those analysis results. So one of the big projects that we're pursuing right now is we have these genomes of these cancer patients. And of course, cancer is primarily driven by all these crazy mutations that happen. And so you look at all these different mutations that happen in the genome of all these patients, and it's a, it's, it's a lot. It's, uh, I think, hundreds of gigabytes is what we have right now. Um, something something on that order, hundreds of gigabytes. And then we need to be able to allow researchers to search quickly across that. Uh, so we do have applications that we're investigating that do that search. And we actually do that search within, uh, we have tried it with Elasticsearch in the past. And right now we've moved more towards 
an S3 kind of Athena Spark MapReduce approach, which I think is working much better. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't heard about Athena yet. Do you want to just give us like the TLDR and like how that lets you query data from S3? Yes. So I haven't actually used Athena too much, but as I understand it, it kind of works like uh, Spark would work on a large data frame. Instead of a data frame, though, you've got on-disk partitions inside of an object store like S3, and it kind of just does MapReduce on S3 and then spits out all the results to some other S3 location. Very cool. I mean, I guess like at a super high level, like what does that look like in terms of the queries you would need to write to get that data? Is it like in the same like universe as SQL or is it just totally like alien to that? Yeah, so yes, you can write SQL now. I think you can write SQL for Athena. I know you can write SQL for Elasticsearch now. So yeah, I, uh, well, you actually expose this data through a JupyterHub-like environment. I think we're using Zeppelin. So you can just spin up a Jupyter Hub, a Jupyter Notebook, and the researcher can plug in their Athena query, which looks like SQL, and get back the result just like that. So uh, yeah, it is something like SQL, but I think there's also many other alternative ways to query it. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to drop like 15 links in the show notes to all, <laughs> all of those things. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I can uh, have to dig some more details up for you about how that's working. Yeah. So you mentioned before that you are using GraphQL and you're also using the Django REST framework. Do you want to go into like why you chose to even use GraphQL when the Django REST framework exists? Or does that actually support GraphQL also? Because I'm a total newbie when it comes to that library in Django. I just, you know, I haven't used it. Uh, yeah, the graphene library uh, is really fantastic. It's, it's pretty similar to Django REST framework in what it does. Uh, it just kind of plops your model in and it builds a GraphQL API and resolver around it. So why do we choose GraphQL? I think that was almost entirely driven by our front end. And working with GraphQL on the front end is just a lot easier. If you're doing REST on the front end in React, you got to work with Redux and manage your state. And you got to make sure all the endpoints are returning what you expect them to return, uh, like format-wise, schema-wise. And there's just quite a lot. So if you use GraphQL, you've got great products like Apollo, which will just look at your GraphQL endpoint, know everything that's available, know the format that it's in, and it will do things like caching and state management for you. So it's just what is easier for us to get rolling quickly on the front end by implementing a GraphQL backend. Nice. Yeah, I don't have too much experience with GraphQL, but one thing I've read on the internet and heard from a couple of other folks is it can be very easy to end up into situations where you write, you know, queries or whatever, where you end up having like N plus one problems. Have you encountered that issue? And if so, how did you get uh, past that? Uh, I did spend maybe a year or two fighting GraphQL for that reason. But then I actually moved over and I wrote some front end code and it was just so much easier. So I have not encountered that problem yet, but I do see how it's very easy to make that mistake and go n many layers deep in your resolver and completely overwhelm the database. Uh, so I've not seen that problem yet, but I am very aware that it exists. So in my, my situation, I think the benefits far outweigh the costs. So I'm just going to keep going with it until I see that problem and which point I will try to address it. <laughs> Yeah, because I don't think it's going to be one of those things where it's like, well, 
you know, that's the problem, game over, time to switch tech stacks. You know, it's going to be like, well, you know, I'll just do things a little bit different to not have that problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're in a very good position where we're doing internal applications. So we're not so exposed to bad actors, fortunately. So that's a really great place to be in. Yeah, for sure. Now, I guess on a bigger picture, you know, using GraphQL and uh, Django REST framework, like what made you choose that tech stack over just using Django templates and keeping it mainly like server side? I think that was primarily driven by it's kind of the modern way to do things. Uh, we were also hoping to grow out the front end team a little more, whereas right now it's the same team. We were hoping there would be more of a UX design focused team doing all of that and then coordinating with the back end team. But modern day hasn't worked out as we thought, where it's kind of just one team in charge of both stacks. Uh, so. Yeah, I think that was why we decided to separate things. Again, coming from the microservice, let's separate everything to let's kind of just keep everything together now. So I wouldn't be surprised if next project that we take, we do move back towards Django templates or something a little bit uh, under one code base. Right. Yeah, it seems like you had good intentions, right? If you did have that separate front end, then it totally makes sense to have a separate code repo and someone working just on that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But for the most part, uh, yeah, it hasn't really hampered us. I think, if anything, we have the great benefits of having a very dynamic front end now, whereas you might be a little bit more limited with Django templates to provide some of the richer interactions. Right. Since we can't see this app, it's an internal app, do you maybe want to paint a picture and maybe what type of interactions you have and like what parts are dynamic, like autocomplete and whatever else? Sure. So like I said, it's mostly a logistics app. If you will, where we have users who come in to the application and they go to their data project, we call it a study. So they'll navigate to their study that they're interested in and that they're working on. And from there, they will upload us documents. And these are documents that are in prescribed formats that are essential to us in tracking the progress of things. And so they'll upload documents and then these are version controlled, sort of like Git, where We'll let people upload new versions of the same document as more data becomes available. So people upload new versions. And then the idea is that we'll then take whatever has been uploaded so that we can approve it, sign off on it, and then we will run some ETL code to push it downstream to the next process. So that's the major interaction. And then in terms of like the web UI, is it mainly just processing forms and like viewing tables, searching things, filtering things like that type of app? Yeah, it's a very CRUD-based application at the moment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe now we can switch gears a bit and talk more about your tech stack. So you mentioned, you know, GraphQL, Django REST framework, using Python and Django. Uh, do you happen to be using Docker in development or no? Yes. So I'm a huge fan of Docker. Docker has helped us in a lot of places. Uh, as a developer, I'm a huge fan because it allows us to set up our backend, which is kind of, uh, it has a lot of service dependencies. So we can just use Docker Compose. We do a Docker Compose up, and we combine a bunch of these Docker Compose files for each of the dependent services. And then just like that, you've got a full backend running on your local machine ready to go. So I love Docker for that fact. Uh, and then we also use ECS and Amazon. It's the Elastic Container Service where we deploy Docker images into our different environments as well. So being able to ensure that consistency between our dev environment locally and our live AWS environments is, is really vital and important and valuable. 
So I enjoy Docker for that reason too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Docker. So when you spin up those separate services, then do you just pass in like multiple compose files with a dash F flag? Yeah, exactly. So we'll have kind of like the standard application. It's called the, the study creator where we'll just be like Docker compose up and it will just stand you up that service. And then actually we try to abstract away all the other service features as much as possible. So we have like uh, a worker service, which is like a Redis queue processor and it won't get stood up automatically, but uh, it's fine because the study creator has a bunch of feature flags that are, if they're off, then it won't touch any of those features. It won't do that work. But then you'll do Docker compose dash F service worker and then you get your worker application and you get all your feature flags set that are in that Docker compose file. So kind of like, it's very easy to work with different configurations of your application and it's fantastic. Very cool. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like your explanation of that, not crazy because it's bad. It's like crazy because it's cool because I literally just set something up for that for a client of mine a couple months back where the pattern was almost exactly the same. Like I, I love that ability to be able to just spin up just the one service service that you're hacking on or, you know, the couple or the handful that you need for the whole stack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's really great because sometimes like these are really heavy services and I don't want to have 10 of them running on my computer or don't want to worry about them because they take like 10 minutes to boot up or something. Um, so yeah, having those different feature flags with combined with the different compose files has been very valuable. Yeah. So now you mentioned that, you know, you really, you're not, you know, storing tons of data in Postgres, but do you have any type of like, Postgres database for other stuff? Like are you using Redis and Salary? Yeah, so we use, uh, yes, we're on Postgres for the backend primarily, for the Django primary backend. And then we're using Redis just for worker queues at the moment. So we don't have any caching going on yet, maybe soon. Uh, and then we use Elastic Cache for that. So it's just Reddit, uh, managed Elastic Cache. And that's Django RQ that we use. And then we use a couple other services that are also Django Postgres combinations. And those get spun up as well as dependent services. Interesting. So is Django RQ some type of like alternative to Celery then? Yes. Celery, Celery has a bunch of backends. It's a little bit more heavy. You could use Redis as a backend. Uh, Django RQ is just Redis Q, uh, there's a Python library called RQ, and it's just a very basic task worker. Um, and so it's just lighter weight. I find it's a lot easier to manage than having to deal with Celery. Uh, so that's what we use. Right. Do you want to rattle off maybe some of the, the tasks that you might need to execute in the background? Yeah, sure. So we have a scheduler that runs a lot of synchronization tasks because our main application ties in a bunch of services like Slack, like S3, like uh, other cloud provider platforms. So we need to constantly, because from within our application, we spin up resources in all different sorts of places like uh, like S3 or other cloud platforms. We need to kind of make sure we keep tabs on those things, see if they've changed and then update them internally so we have an accurate representation. So we have like tasks that go on for that sort of thing. Then we also run background tasks that are one-off that take a lot of time, things like starting up um, services or, or allocating resources or sending notifications, those sort of things. So just transitioning now into AWS, do you want to go a little bit into the details of why you chose that over the others? Well, from the beginning, it's, it's all about budget. Uh, we were certified for 
certain amount of AWS credits, we had contracts already. So AWS was the only choice, essentially. Right. Fair enough. And it's not like it's a bad service. You know, I'm not questioning your decision there. It's, it's an amazing service. But uh, what did make you use ECS over maybe their managed Kubernetes or just maybe something else? Well, back when we started, managed Kubernetes was almost about to be announced. So it was like months beforehand. Uh, and even when it was announced, I think it was a little hairy, if I recall. So ECS was the only option at the moment for containers, unless we wanted to manage our own, um, which wasn't very much fun. We only had one DevOps hand at the time. So ECS seemed like the natural choice since we went to invest a little, as little DevOps as possible. Yeah, it's one of those things where, I mean, even a couple of years ago, ECS was pretty freaking good. Like, you know, it, it's not Kubernetes, but you can still manage like a fleet of containers on that and be quite successful. What was your experience like getting set up with ECS? Like, I know we have those Docker Compose files that we use in development, but was it tricky to get, you know, those task definition files and services set up for ECS or no? We mostly did all of that in, let's say, like the first couple months of getting started on this project. And since then, it's kind of been very, very hunky-dory. It's been great. So it hasn't really evolved. Um, so like, yeah, we were managed, managed to kind of get all those task definitions and Terraform set up immediately and get rolling with our dev process. And it suited us quite well. So it was a pretty straightforward process. And as a developer, I was very pleased and I still am very pleased with that setup. Nice. I like how you said Terraform immediately, as if like not using it was impossible. Like no chance of that happening. Yeah. When we started again, Terraform was uh, the way to go, I believe. So we came in. I wasn't in charge of DevOps entirely at the time. So our DevOps guy was like, well, God do Terraform. So that's what we did. And it's been fantastic so far. That's kind of interesting too, because I know AWS also has CloudFormation, which is kind of like, you know, AWS specific Terraform, but different syntax, different product. But what made you choose Terraform in the end? Was it just because he was familiar with it or she? Well, yes. So I think it was because there was a very real possibility of moving to other clouds in the future. So of course, everyone is afraid of the vendor lock-in deal. So everyone wants to be, you know, agnostic. So that was very likely what drove that factor in that decision, uh, as opposed right. to choosing CloudFormation. Now, speaking of vendor lock, do you maybe want to go over uh, a couple of AWS services that you might be using besides ECS and S3? Yeah, well, like I mentioned before, we were kind of getting big on the AWS Lambda API gateway functions as a service products. And we've laid off some of them a lot because we're not really in need of that much scale and having a mono repo is a lot easier to manage than having like all of these little functions that do 10 or 20 line Python things. So AWS Lambda, API Gateway, I mentioned we use Elastic Cache, we're using Managed Postgres, uh, and of course, petabytes of data in S3 across many accounts. Um, then we're also doing, I also talked about this analysis that we're doing on the code, or sorry, on the uh, genomic files that we store. This is all done inside of uh, EMR. Then we use... Wait, sorry to interrupt. EMR? What's the TLDR on that one? EMR is, is the Elastic MapReduce product. It's just managed Hadoop and Spark within AWS. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Amazon products here. Uh, so, yeah, I think those are the big players, big things that we use. Uh, ECS, ECR. 
Yeah, and then of course things like CloudWatch, we do all of our logging through that. Okay. What about something like uh, their load balancer? Do you have that in front of anything? Oh yes, of course. So we you have, you got through the ALB application load balancer in front of the ECS target groups, of course. So that manages all of our traffic to and from our different uh, ECS services. And then uh, another really big thing for us is using VPCs, virtual private clouds, to make sure all of our different environments are separated. And we do that because we have some potentially like protected data, personally identifying data, and we need to make sure those stay in the right spots. Right. Also, I imagine if you're using Terraform, it can get a little scary if you have all of your resources in the same VPC and like the same account. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we have a three VPC setup where we run kind of dev QA production, and then we'll have a Jenkins. We have one Jenkins deployment and another VPC. And so we always run everything through dev and QA before we get to production to ensure that not only is our code functioning as we want it, but also our deployment, making sure that we're not ripping down everything by accident. Right. So before we get into that, like maybe the whole process of development to production, like how many or roughly how many nodes do you have in that ECS cluster? Uh, In production, I want to say we have at least 10 task services, uh, tasks as you call them. And this is all Fargate. So we're not actually, uh, most of it's Fargate. So we're not actually deployed to EC2s. We're on Fargate instances. Uh, and then I can't quite put a number, but it's probably around 50 to 100 different ECS tasks deployed at any time. Oh, wow. And are those just like mostly one-off things that are running on some periodic schedule or whatever? Like it's not the main web app? Uh, so it's not the web app that I we work on, but we have enough, uh, a number of other services, as I mentioned earlier, that take up that total amount. For us, our application, we only have three. So we're typically only deployed one web server, which is our GraphQL. We have one scheduler, which is actually bundled on the same ECS task. And then we have the actual worker, which just consumes from the queue. And so we've got like automatic scaling for our web server so, and the worker. So if we ever get overwhelmed with a bunch of worker tasks, we scale that elastically, automatically, or we scale like the front end. If we're getting a ton of web requests, we can scale the, web, uh, the API layer. So in terms of our applications, uh, there should usually only never be more than three nodes at a time, three actual processes. Okay. And then do you have things set up to where, you know, if, if you roll up a new version of that, just one of those goes down at a time so you don't have downtime between each deploy? Yeah. So ECS will manage that for you. Uh, if you've moved to CloudFormation, I think that they've just released a blue-green deployment, which is really cool. But we're just doing the standard rolling deployment, which ECS will spin up your new task before it rips down your old one. It will ping it a couple times with a health check, and then it will roll it over and then it will kill the old deployment. So that's all done for us behind the scenes by Amazon, which is pretty great. Right, just a tiny bit of configuration up front to get you know those health checks in place and off to the races. Yeah, it's pretty minimal from, like I said, we kind of abstracted everything at the beginning and now it's just kind of there for us, so it's great. Right, so you mentioned that you are using Fargate. Do you maybe want to get into a little bit of detail about that? Like why would you use that over ECS directly and like what advantages does it give you? Yes, it's been a while since I've evaluated this question and since we've looked into it. I believe the answer comes down to 
again, we don't want to spend too much time managing things. We don't want to have to roll upgrades to all of our EC2s. We aren't really that scalable. So we're, we're running pretty small tasks. Uh, and so it's better if we can just use these like half a CPU deploys for some of our applications rather than allocating like full CPUs or what have you, full EC2s. Uh, so it's a little bit more uh, discrete, smaller discrete units for our, our purposes, which really help. Right. So you mentioned maybe half a CPU for some of these things. Do you know roughly like how much memory you give to the services that you're in control of? Uh, I think we also, we're running, Django's a very small memory footprint. Like if we were running Spring or something, we'd be uh, in Java in the JVM, we'd be like eight gigs or something. But I think we're down at the minimum four or two or whatever the minimum RAM allocation is. I've never seen anything go over 30% or 50% RAM usage. So it's pretty good. Right. And are you using uh, the G-Unicorn web server for that or the app server? Yeah. So we run four G-Unicorn processes within each uh, web server task within ECS. So we can service up to four simultaneous connections at any given moment per deployed ECS task. Okay, nice. Now, when it comes to things like static files and you know, doing things like HTTP to HTTPS redirects, do you just take advantage of Amazon's load balancer or do you have like Nginx sitting in front of this? Yeah, so we don't bother with Nginx or any of that actually, which is really great. We don't serve any static files directly from Django either. We actually serve everything out of Netlify because all we've got is JavaScript bundles. Now we do have Django using S3 for a storage backend because we do uh, document uploads and such. Uh, but then that just goes to an S3 backend um, as opposed to like uh, through, we don't do serve it through Nginx or anything like that. So going back to what you said about using Netlify, I've heard of that before, of course, you know, it's always on Hacker News about being this really cool service to host like your static websites on. Is it more than that though? Because I've personally never used it. Do you just use it as like a CDN then somehow? Yeah, it works as a CDN as well. So the great benefit I get out of it as a developer is it will generate preview deployments for each of your pool requests or each of your branches. So I will just, working on the front end, I will fork or I will branch uh, to my feature branch and I'll just push it, create a PR, and then Netlify gets a build hook trigger and it will build me my JavaScript bundle and deploy it too for me. So that way I get this fancy preview link within my PR where I can just immediately view that feature and what it looks like without having to uh, do anything you know, myself. Like I don't have to sign into SSH into a box. I don't have to build it and I switch over any routing or anything. It just does it for me. And then yes, when you do deploy it or merge back into master, Netlify will pick that up. It'll deploy it straight to your top level domain and then your site will be live. So. Wow. And then it serves it off your CDN, it's CDN. And then there is other functionality, which we don't use. We just use the basic build functionality, but I do hear Netlify does things like analytics and form tracking and sign-on and stuff like that. Very cool. Yeah, it sounds like it does a lot of uh, very useful things. Amazon. We actually use CloudFront for our production deployment of our static assets. And that's great and it works well, but it takes maybe 10 to 20 minutes even to get the CDN deployments rolling. So it's just not fit for dev work. So Netlify will just have us deploy previews in two, three, four minutes at most. So it's very easy, quick dev cycle. Okay, so yeah, maybe now we can go back to your dev cycle of going from development to production. Cause it, yeah, it sounds like you're just using 
the Netlify thing for just handling previewing pull requests, but not being serving production traffic. Yes, it's a little bit, uh, there's a lot going on here. So we do have like the separation. There's a separation between our static JavaScript React front end, which is using Netlify. And then we do have the back end, which is Django, of course. And we're running that on an ECS uh, Jenkins deployment. So I just described how we work with Netlify in the front end. So now to describe how we work with uh, Jenkins on ECS and our Django backend, uh, the way that works is, again, we will work as a developer on a new feature branch, and then we'll create a pull request within GitHub. We work all on GitHub. And then GitHub will tie into our Jenkins deployment, which is within our AWS account. And that will generate a Docker image for us, which will go to Elastic Container Repository, ECR, and then get deployed to ECS. And then that will be all living within our development VPC. So up until this point, we've developed a new feature and we have a live development API deployed within AWS that we can preview and play around with. So then after that happens and we've okayed it and we've had sign off, we do code review, we merge back to master and Git, and then Jenkins will pick that up again. And now it does a deployment but it does it to our QA environment. So that's a slightly, our slightly more stable environment. And we're uh, using that as a kind of a preview fork. And then once we're happy with, we're ready to go to production and we've okayed everything and it's all good. And we're making sure that our unit tests are passing and our integration tests are passing and our Jenkins Terraform deployments are not blowing everything up. Then we will create a release tag and Jenkins will pick that up and that will go into production, require some administrative sign-off, and then it will be live. And then you'll be able to hit the live URL from the internet. Interesting, lots of moving parts there. Yeah, it's, uh, I feel, you say that, but I feel like we've really done a lot to reduce the number of working parts uh, because I've been in situations where that process is just maybe not even defined or there's a hundred steps long and you'll have no end to trying to get your little feature into production. So to me, that seems very tight. Yeah. Well, no, it's funny because Jenkins gets such a bad rap for being like, oh, this archaic, like bloated, like disgusting monster to work with. But at the same time, it's like, well, this is like your main workhorse. It's getting all of this done for you in this tight, like compact way. Have you found working with this good? And also what version of Jenkins are you using? Because I know there's a whole bunch of different ones out there. Yeah, Jenkins is pretty amazing. It does get a lot of flack. Right now it's getting a lot of flack internally as well. Uh, but it's been, like you said, quite a workhorse and it has been chugging along pretty well. Um, so very reliable. We use it for a lot of our deployments, far reaching far beyond just kind of that, what I just described, but we also use it for different tasks, uh, data management wise across hundreds of, we literally have hundreds of repos that Jenkins listens to and deploys for us. Uh, so it is very trusty. Wow. But yeah, there are a number of gotchas. So while you look up the version that you're using, like what type of box is this Jenkins server running on in terms of specs? Okay, so Jenkins itself is the exception to Fargate. We deploy Jenkins on an EC2 cluster in ECS, and they are pretty relatively beefy 
I don't know what the EC2 size is now, but what we do is we just have the Jenkins master and we only scale up the slaves as we need them. Uh, so they're not always on, not always churning. Okay, so if someone opens up a PR or something and you need to build stuff, that's when they get spun up? Yes, yeah, exactly. So they'll sit and if they're idle, they'll kind of shut themselves down. Otherwise they will kind of spin up and they'll be there while we're divving and pushing PRs. Okay. Now, you know, switching out Jenkins for something else is not like an easy thing to do, but you said internally from your own team, it's gotten a bit of flack. Were you looking at alternatives to this or no? <laughs> well, yeah, internally it's gotten some flack because I think it was just last week Jenkins decided to maybe kind of delete itself and something happened where it just kind of crashed the database and went away. So I'm, I'm out, guys. See ya. Um, so <laughs> it's, I think it's what happened. Yeah, it's what I'm told at least. So yeah, there are things like that. Uh, as a developer and an end user, the interface is kind of eh. Uh, I used to use the Blue Ocean, but there was a lot of issues with that. Um, so yeah, it's there's all of these uh, rough edges, but that's actually okay because we, as the dev teams, actually use Circle and now some of GitHub Actions to do a lot of our internal CI. So Jenkins is really in charge of the deployment stuff only, and Circle will do anything regarding code linting or unit testing or integration testing. So I don't have to work with Jenkins until I need to deploy something. Now, when you come to deploying something, is this something you do on a pretty frequent basis? Like, is it every day, every week, a couple times a day? So I would say we deploy to our dev environment. We deploy once per push, uh, actually. So we can deploy up to hundreds of times per day into our dev environment. And then in terms of QA, that's just as often as we're merging masters. So I would say once, twice, 10, a dozen times a day even at uh, high rate days. And then in terms of doing releases to production, we try to aim for once a week, maybe once every other week we're doing production deployments. So yeah, there's a lot of Terraform execution. We're pretty confident when we go out the door to production that uh, it won't delete everything for us. So it sounded like you do have Jenkins in charge of doing the Terraform deploys too, right? It's like someone is not just running that on their dev box. That's all part of your pipeline? No, absolutely. Yeah, it's all done from within Jenkins. So we have a good log of it. Um, yeah, we're, we try not to do any local execution of Terraform unless it's DevOps doing some debugging. But no, developers will certainly not be in charge of running Terraform. Yeah, it's so cool though, right? I mean, to get to that point where you're confident enough to like let a machine deploy your machines, basically, you know, or resources. Yeah, it's a very powerful thing. And I'm just thankful that I don't have to think about it now and Jenkins does it all for me. So it is very powerful. Yeah. So now speaking of machines, you know, sometimes things go wrong. So let's talk a little bit about planning for disasters and unexpected events. Well, we know Jenkins can sometimes be wrong, like get up and leave for no reason, but typically a good uh, robot, I guess you can say. But uh, yeah, how do you deal with things like database backups if needed, and as well as backing up things like those user uploaded files? Yeah, so the user uploaded files are in S3, which is great because we don't have to think too hard. They're backed up to Glacier, so that's nice. We can always just kind of one-click restore from our data recovery buckets in a different region, and it's good. Uh, in terms of database backups, we're using managed databases, so Amazon manages those. 
And then within our Jenkins pipelines, we do have a step for production where if things go wrong, we do have a revert database feature that will revert to the database snapshot before the production, uh, before the release that the pipeline is running for. So that will supposedly restore our database uh, to like just moments beforehand, before things went out the door. So uh, we haven't used that too often, thankfully. We don't test that as well as we should. That is something you should test, something we don't do enough of. Um, but in theory, that is how it works. Yeah, because before you said like supposedly and, and now in theory, I wasn't sure. <laughs> have you even had this, had this happen at least once or twice that you had to test it when things got real or no? We have done it once or twice in the past, but we have not had an incident in the last year, maybe even two years. So it's been a little while. Wow, that's great to hear. And I guess like your whole entire automated workflow is a testament to like really bad catastrophic things get caught before they're a real problem in production. Yes, that is exactly the idea. Uh, although we have had some issues uh, with Terraform just yesterday even where we have some state issues where state gets out of whack and it's misaligned and then uh, suddenly it does Terraform does weird things. So we had some weird things where security groups got uh, the security groups that was expecting weren't aligned correctly in production. And that can be scary. So like if that was a database and it thought that database wasn't there and it, or it was there and it, it thought it shouldn't be and it accidentally deleted it, then that's a problem. Um, so yeah, there are, we have seen some weird things with state in Terraform, but it doesn't happen too often. And like you said, we're doing this lots and lots and lots of times in dev environments. So we do have a lot of confidence when we go out the door. Yeah, I think that's the one thing. Like if you're going to automate setting up your infrastructure with Terraform and have that be executed automatically by a CI server, you know, having that extra environment, like not just going straight to prod is probably essential. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is. Because um, yeah, you don't want to risk pushing out something to prod and having everything collapse. <laughs> yeah, I'll admit in most of my side projects, like, you know, it's just me working on it. I'm very happy just running Terraform myself instead of just fully automating it because, you know, these are projects that I'm, I care about. Um, but yeah, I just don't trust it enough to just run that automatically. <laughs> yeah, it's a very powerful tool and there's definitely a lot of foot guns. So if you fat finger something, you could look at your AWS account being deleted. So um, yeah, so yeah, we were back a while ago looking into alternatives to run Terraform code exclusively because we realized that's mostly what we do with Jenkins and we weren't really happy with Jenkins. So we were looking into things like HashiCorp's Nomad to run Terraform exclusively. And I believe it has a couple more features specific to Terraform that makes it a better solution than Jenkins. But for whatever reason, we got off that path and we did not pursue that. So we will have to revisit that soon. Yeah, I have not used Nomad firsthand, but it sounds like something I should probably be looking into. So I'll drop a link to that one in the show notes. Now, going back to your setup here, like disaster recovery, you mentioned that you are using CloudWatch to do some logging on the AWS side. Do you have any alerts set up to where you get notified if things start to go wrong, like the site isn't up or memory resources go too high? Yes, we do have a couple basic metrics that we watch for. We have a lot of automated metrics around CPU and memory. Uh, like you said, we could use a lot of improvement around actual logging. Um, for some of the applications we have, 
implemented metrics and email alerts for like, status codes on HTTP, but we have not really embraced that as much as we should have. Um, so right now the debug flow might be us simply getting a 500 or hearing of like a 500 or something unexpected happening from a user and then exploring CloudWatch through their uh, logs, which isn't ideal, uh, but we have been considering moving more towards email notifications through native Django rather than relying on CloudWatch to do that. Right. And when it comes to those email notifications, are they getting sent through SES or a different transactional email service? Yes. Right now we're setting up on SES. So we also use SES for things like user invites and such. So it was already plugged in as our email backend for Django. So that's what we use. So we're getting towards the end of the show here. Do you want to just talk about maybe some of the best tips and lessons learned that you've figured out from developing and applying this app? Yeah, I think it's been a really great venture for me. Uh, really progressed a lot in terms of how I viewed developing web apps in Python. Uh, like I said, I've progressed from let's do it all ourselves to let's let people who have thought about it a lot more than I have dictate things. And so embracing what Django has to offer in that ecosystem has really been hugely beneficial to the productivity and being able to provide more value to our users. And it's been really, really, really good um, using things that people have already put out there for you. So yeah, Django, all batteries included, is uh, it's not overhyped. <laughs> uh, second to that biggest lesson learned is having a very tight development loop and feature life cycle because you don't want to be lost in the where you are in a feature. You don't want to have to think about why is my infra not working? Why are my tests borking on the install phase stage? Uh, you just want to be able to write your business code and merge PRs and have stuff deployed. So having that tight dev loop has been very critical to us and to allowing us churn out features quickly and add value quickly. Nice. Yeah, that is very good advice. And uh, it seems like it's working out for you very well because you know, you're deploying many, many times a day and things are going quite smoothly. Yes, for my last job, I gotta say that that was a huge pain point. And so coming here, I had to turn that all around and it's gone very well for us. Awesome, so Dan, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Great, thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, so before we wrap this up, do you wanna share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, sure. I will share my GitHub with you. It's github.com slash Dan Coleman, my name. You can post that up. And my website is coleman.com. That's K-O-L-B-M-A-N.com. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, or leave a review if you like the show.